Good morning and welcome to um, this week's episode of Recipe for Success. For anyone that is tuning in for the first time, um, if you know me at all, you know that I love cooking. And one of the things about cooking is that it's there's always a secret ingredient or an ingredient or a technique that is um, critical to the success of the, of the recipe. So taking that same theory, I have been talking to business leaders and talking to them about what their key ingredients to success are. So today I'm really excited to have Justin Stifel from Heritage Distilling Company um, as my guest. Heritage, Heritage Distilling Company is one among the top premier craft distilleries in the United States. They make a variety of whiskeys, vodkas, gins, aquavit, and rums um, from as many possible local ingredients as possible. I said possible twice, but you'll forgive me. Um, and I'm really privileged because Heritage is located in my backyard here in Gig Harbor. And they happen to be one of the most awarded craft distilleries in the United States. So I'm really excited to welcome Justin. I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself and a little bit more about Heritage. Sure, thanks. Nice to see you again, Nancy. Uh, it's been a while since we did, we've been able to see each other face to face given all the COVID separations. Um, I'm Justin Stiefel, CEO and co-founder of Heritage Distilling Company, headquartered in Gig Harbor, Washington. And uh, we started the company in 2011 on paper and uh, put the plan together. And then we opened to the public in late 2012. And we now have six locations across the Northwest, uh, a couple of interesting partner locations and opportunities in addition to that and um, have a team of about 118 people actually 118 people exactly and uh, we've been just working hard trying to make high quality spirits uh, really kind of get the customer engaged as they explore their spirits palette as the consumer moves from wine and beer into spirits we're seeing that categorical move on a big level and uh, try to engage the customer in that full customer journey uh, whether it's online or when they come into one of our tasting rooms or they join our cast club or uh, maybe if they're out and about and they see product at retail store or bar or restaurant cool so what motivated you to want to start a distillery and on top of that in all places our little gig harbor washington well first uh, people ask the question why in gig harbor and i say well why not uh, we live here our families here our kids go to school here um, my wife and I are both from Washington state originally spent some time in Alaska and, um, you know, we love the state. We love the environment. We love the, the opportunities, the, the people, so on. Um, and so as we were sitting and, and working on the business plan, I said, well, why would we want to drive to somewhere? Why not set it up in our backyard? Uh, it used to be that when you lived somewhere you worked in that same community and over the last 50 years that spread out people started going to major cities and moving out to the suburbs and and so on and commuting and the commute really gets to you what we're finding now with covid is people are going back to their hometown and they're working from their hometown and, and we're starting to see that kind of reverse migration at least temporarily um what wanted what, what started me thinking about a distillery well I was six years old watching reruns of MASH on TV with my dad. And if you remember in that show, uh, they had a still in the tent. 
Hawkeye and I forgot about that. They had a still in the tent, right? And at at the age of six, I was very interested in process. And I asked my dad, what is that glass coil? What's that thing? It was a beaker. Uh, What are they cooking? What's coming out? Why is the glass in an upside down triangle shape, like a martini glass? And so he kind of walked me through what all that meant. And I was fascinated by it. And in seventh grade, chemistry, I was able to build a still for a school project, got an A on that project, and uh, just kept my interest with process. And in, in college, I studied chemical engineering. That's the underlying curriculum for running distillation. And uh, in that curriculum, as a chemical engineer, you work on lots of things. You can learn how to turn oil into gasoline and kerosene and diesel and other things. You can learn how to take trees and run them through processes to make paper and rayon and cardboard and other other things. Or you can work to make corn into whiskey or rye into vodka or you know so on. And so uh, I was fascinated by that. And then it went to Washington, D.C., went to law school. And when my, my wife and I finally decided to move back here, it had just become legal to open distilleries in Washington. Prior to 2009, you couldn't get a distillery license. You could only get a brewery or a winery license. So with the law changed, with the technical knowledge in the background and the legal knowledge to navigate the systems, we put a plan together. And uh, here we are. So if I remember correctly, I think I heard some sort of story about you and another couple potentially sitting around a campfire. Yep. That's right. This was uh, May of 2011, and uh, we were sitting around a friend's campfire in their backyard, beautiful Pacific Northwest night, clear sky, just, you know, just what you would expect in spring and summer. And uh, we were drinking some scotch and having cigars. And I made the comment, you know, I think we can do something like this, but we can do it in a local way and, and make it more appealing and make it better for the consumer. And uh, my friend asked, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, the law has just changed. And by, by the way, here's how we would do it. And the next morning when we kind of shook off the cobwebs of the night before, uh, it still sounded like a good idea. And so we put the business plan together and here we are. Cool. Okay. So... Let's rewind the calendar a bit. Let's talk about early 2020. Um, I know because I happen to work with you guys that things were going gangbusters for your company. You were on track for record growth and then COVID hit. Yeah. (laughs) What was your first reaction and what did you do next? Well, we had been, I'm I'm a voracious consumer of news um, in real time as much as possible. And in December, we were watching, December of 19, we were watching whatever the reports were coming out of China, out of Wuhan, on their lockdowns, the spread of the virus, and so on. And uh, on the news, they were deconstructing backwards the timeline, what they thought the timeline was of the virus and incubation and all that. And uh, January 21st, the very first case of coronavirus was confirmed in Everett, Washington, if you remember that. I mean, oh, I remember. Based in the U.S. And so immediately, within about 20 minutes, I convened my team and I said, the very first case in the U.S. is in Everett. It's going to spread. If we've been watching what happened in China, we know there's going to be some kind of lockdown as this thing spreads and people are going to freak out. I think we have about six weeks before shutdowns hit 
we need to double our efforts. We need to fill product into the warehouse because we don't know what's going to happen with raw goods inputs. We'll be, be able to leave our house. We'll be able to go to the distillery to work. What We don't know what we can expect. And we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know what the outcome's going to be. So we need to take the time now. And so we spent that six weeks working overtime and we filled the warehouse. Um, and then the governor's announcement came, we're shutting everything down in Washington. And that came two days after we filled the warehouse. And so we had to do a series of layoffs because there were shutdowns. We had to close all of our tasting rooms. All the bars and restaurants across the state were closed. And uh, we didn't know what was going to happen. And so we had to put those those uh, layoffs into effect. And I remember having those those phone calls with the teams. And I, and I said at the time, look, there are there's going to be a wave of people calling the unemployment office starting next week because companies have not begun to think about their plan. You need to hang up from this phone call right now, as painful as this layoff might be, and you need to go to the state website and you need to sign up right now because if you don't, you're going to be stuck with hundreds of thousands of people next week and you're not going to get your unemployment. And uh, as tough as that was, I got phone calls and emails that following week from some of the former employees saying, thank you because we got signed up and our friends and family who waited a week are shut out. And even today, there are still people who are not getting their full benefits. Um, And so then uh, in March, as we saw what was happening and things were unfolding, the federal government opened up the opportunity for distilleries to make sanitizer. And and so we decided to jump in in a big way because we had a lot of resources in the warehouse uh, that we could put to use. We'd filled all the the spirits needs that we had for a while. And uh, so we shifted into making large quantities of uh, hand sanitizer. Yeah, I uh, I believe that I own a couple bottles of that. It was funny yeah. at first because when you were first putting them out, they were literally in your in your whiskey and vodka bottles, mm-hmm. and so it was kind of funny. And and our local Costco carried them as well. And yep. I, people were just I, I, for some reason it tickled people to have um, hand sanitizer in a whiskey bottle. They they liked it, and um, you guys had lines down the down the um, block for people lining up to get it because it was a, a very valuable service that. Um, allowed you to keep your employees employed, but also to service the community. It was a it was a great shift. It was an important pivot because we were able to reopen the tasting rooms. We couldn't do indoor service, but we could bring those retail employees back so they could sell products to go, including the sanitizer. You're right. We did have lines out the block. It was really kind of a sight to see. And if you remember at that time, no matter what store you went into, whether it was Costco or Safeway or Albertsons, there were lines out the store, the uh, rushes on toilet paper, uh, that kind of hoarding mentality. But our team really did an amazing job. Um, they understood the mission. We we had to make that pivot in about 72 hours. Um, and uh, when we convened, we said, hey, this is a new world. And uh, we cannot, I, I tell people this all the time, you cannot uh, be defined, your, your company is not defined by by the preconceived notions you had about it last year. Your company is likely to be different this year and next year and in future years for a variety of reasons. And so use your imagination and don't let your constraints, um, you know, the, the box you were operating in before define your constraints. Yeah, that's, that's uh, fantastic. So you, you've kind of answered it, but I'm going to ask again, just because I think it's helpful for other people, but what specific skills do you think were necessary to allow you and your team to pivot as quickly as you did? First, uh, you have to have leadership that has a, a mission. Um, you know, th- there are, there are, there's a vision 
then there's a goal, then there's a mission, and then there is a strategy, and then there are tactics. And so you have to define for your team, ultimately, what is the goal, and then you define the mission. And the mission is, go take that hill, and we're going to take that hill. And then you build the team, you set up the strategy, and you deploy the tactics around that. To do that, you have to have the trust of your team. So you can't just turn it on at a whim uh, when there's an emergency. Emergency. You have to have, I think, the credibility built up and the capital so that when you have what might sound like a crazy idea, your team says, hey, we're going to charge a hill with you. So that's that's really about all the things you do in your everyday life leading up to whatever those events are. Um, I think... Uh, you also then have to have trust in your people. Define the mission, set the strategy, and then let them go what they're supposed to go do, <laughs> right? And, and make right. sure they have the resources to go execute. Um, you know, it's, it's it, you, you set somebody up with an impossibility if you say, go hit this objective, and but I'm not going to support you with the resources to go do it. Yeah. Um, and then communicate, you know, and, and trust that people will will be able to uh, appreciate what you're doing in the communication. And, and in this case, the communication was not just with our team, but it was with policy leaders and, and really more importantly, the community. Uh, and the community really rallied around us. Yeah, they did. So um, one thing that uh, you and Heritage have done that's pretty historic um, is that um, along with a local Indian tribe, you have... Um, I'll let you tell the story because it's so unique and it's yeah. so special. Um, I, I would love you to share this with everyone. You're talking about the Chehalis? I am, yeah. Indian tribe, yeah. Well, um, about five years ago, we were approached um, at, uh, the, the Chehalis tribe down in Grand Mount, Washington. They own the Lucky Eagle Casino and they're, they're down near Chehalis. Um, uh, they approached and they said, hey, we're building a new Marriott at exit 88, right, right at the intersection of uh, Highway 12 and, and I-5. And we want an amenity. We're thinking about a restaurant and maybe a brewery tap room. Will you help us design that? And I said, well, we don't make beer. We make spirits. And oh, by the way, I think that the craft beer market is going to see some real challenges as, as growth gets uh, what people think is, is a saturation point. And spirits are just on their upswing. I think what you consider you should consider is a distillery and a brewery with the restaurant and everything. And so they said, okay, let's do it. So we spent the next several years thinking and designing through that. Um, came up with a plan, awesome plan, great design, everything was ready to go. And uh, in February of 2018, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Indian Affairs actually owns the land on, in trust from, for the benefit of tribes on their trust land. They said, hey, you cannot build a distillery on tribal land because we found this old statue from 1834 from Andrew Jackson's era. And if, if anybody watching this is a history um, buff, they know Andrew Jackson um, was um, the pre president responsible for the Indian removal policies, the Trail of Tears where we saw uh, the Native Americans along the East Coast being picked up and kicked off the lands and, and forced westward into Oklahoma, what we now call Oklahoma. Um, if you remember, uh, one of his old nicknames was old Indian killer. And this, this is a bad dude. I did not, I did not know that. Yeah. He was very proud of that from Tennessee. He was very proud of that and what he had uh, done. Um, he's probably one of the most reviled 
individuals among the various tribes for a lot of reasons, uh, and, they're, and they're all good reasons. Um, so this statue was on the books from 1834. You can't set a distillery up in, on a tribal land. Well, the reason that was passed in 1834 had a completely different context. You know, we didn't have the reservation system we have today. We didn't have the formal recognition of tribes like we have today. We didn't have the tribes acting uh, as sovereign nations like we do today, representing the interests of their members, the tribal members. Um, certainly, there was no thought in the 1830s that tribes would be setting up enterprises where they would be running casino operations, hotels, resorts, golf courses, uh, convenience stores, um, you know, major production operations. I mean, the tribes in the U.S. now are some of the, some of the most sophisticated uh, and diversified business interests that you can find you know, in the U.S. Um, that was, no one even thought about that in the 1830s. What, when they passed the statute in the 1830s prohibiting distilleries, they were really trying to stop uh, the white settlers from setting up makeshift stills and selling moonshine to the Indians that were being kicked off the land and moved to new locations. They were trying to, to stop that interaction because it was leading, the sale of that product to them at the time was leading to a lot of bad impacts and was leading to, if you read the history, it was leading to um, additional theft by the settlers of, of Indian personal possessions. They were signing documents to sign land away that they didn't understand because they were getting them inebriated. Um, it was causing fights and counterfeits and it created uh, a new level of lawlessness and what was then the frontier. And so that statue was on the books, had no application today. And when we did the research afterwards, that statute had never been enforced at any level. And in fact, a series of other acts by Congress and uh, federal statutory and judicial interpretations meant that that statute and several others were no longer enforceable, but the BIA didn't care. The other problem with that statute was even if the tribe had gone forward to build it, there's no guarantee that the TTB, which is Department of Treasury, would issue the permit for them to operate the distillery. And even if TTB issued the permit, um, then that prohibition on the statutes, we call that a cloud on title. And if the tribe wanted to later on go take out some financing, it would cause issues at the max. So that's a long story of where we are now. So in, in uh, April of 2018, we in the tribe said, this was a great project. This BIA interpretation is wrong for a variety of reasons. Our best path forward, ironically, is to go to Congress and try and get the statute repealed. Think about that for a minute. You could go sue in, in federal court and probably win, but it'll take a while. You could go to the Department of Justice and see if you could get a memo from them, like with marijuana, saying they wouldn't enforce it. You could go and attempt to get a regulatory interpretation of BIA, or you could go to Congress and get the statute changed. Now, of those four options, what do you think is probably the least predictable and least efficient? It's the congressional route, okay? But still, we thought it was the best route. So the bill was introduced in the House and Senate. Um, we had regular order, and by that I mean it wasn't you know, a rider in some bigger bill. Regular hearings in the House and Senate, regular floor action, uh, passed unanimously, and then it was signed into law in December of 18. So we got a bill introduced and passed in nine months. <laughs> Well, I think I think that that really highlights um, the fact that when you're passionate about something um, and you take that passion and you apply it to the bigger picture, I mean, you've made a difference for 
all of the Indian tribes, not just your specific. Um, it, it wasn't just selfish. Granted, it, it helped you, but it really helped the entire, all of the tribes and, and their ability to, to grow and do those sort of things. So I think that's, that's right. The repeal of that statute benefits all Indian tribes, yeah. not um, in the lower 48, not just the Chehalis tribe. Yeah. And uh, so now that building is open, it's up and running. It's a 36,000 square foot, beautiful distillery, brewery, bar, restaurant. Uh, it's really amazing. And um, it's doing very well. We're in discussions now with a handful of additional tribes to replicate that model. And I think our effort is uh, our effort in helping to get that statute repealed is giving us credibility uh, that nobody else can can have. 100%, I love it. Um, okay, so I already know the answer to this question, but because not everyone's from our, our neck of the woods, yeah. um, tell everybody what your best spelling, best selling spirit is and where they can find it. Well, let's see, our best, we, we uh, were the original creators of what we call BSB, Brown Sugar Bourbon. Uh, we, we created that a couple of years ago. It took off. It became one of the, the hottest spirits uh, coming out of the Northwest. Um, uh, we recently completed a spin out of that. So it actually is a standalone entity now. We're still uh, the single largest owner of that brand, but there um, is a much larger group behind us as, as we try to support that brand in its national and, and eventually its global launch. Um, and so that we call that BSB brown sugar bourbon. Yeah, we're very proud of that uh, product. It's, it's really amazing. We won the best flavored whiskey two years in a row by Whiskey Magazine. That's never happened before in that category. Um, and then we make a variety of other products. We make uh, a slew of naturally flavored vodkas. We make some more traditional whiskeys, bourbon, rye, uh, wheat whiskey. Uh, we're making some really amazing uh, unmalted barley whiskey, like a single malt, but with using unmalted grains. We make some tremendous gins. Uh, we've got a couple of really cool products that we're getting ready to launch here very soon uh, and some really cool collaborative products as well. Exciting. Uh, awesome. Well, um, and for people that are across the United States, um, many of the uh, the baseball, the major league baseball parks, you can get the brown sugar bourbon in, correct? Well, you could. When we were doing live baseball, right? So um, we're, it's it's unclear yet this year if if and when fans will be allowed in the parks. Okay. Um, and then based on that, it's unclear whether um, you're going to see an, uh, that renewed emphasis in in uh, stadiums across the country with you know uncertainty. Uh, resources may be uh, allocated a little differently. Correct. Yes, that, that is. A but you still can't spell baseball without BSB. That's exactly. That, that's, that's where I was getting with that. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. So I end every um, episode with my five burning questions. So are you okay. ready? Light them up. What is your favorite food in the world and can you cook it? Oh, my favorite food? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I really love an amazing steak. And yes, I cook it many different ways. What's your favorite way? Well, uh, sometimes I'll I'll smoke it before I sear it. Smoke it on the Traeger. That sounds butter, delicious. Butter, garlic, and uh, thyme. Hmm, that sounds delicious. Yeah. Okay, so um, you have alluded to this in some of the, your previous answers, but you're both a chemical engineer and an attorney. Hmm. Um, which do you prefer, and why? Well, okay, so uh, <laughs> I'm not sure who's going to be watching this out there, but you know, there, there's an old joke about lawyers. Um, there are very few jokes about engineers, um, and uh, uh, what I say is, um, 
for all the good things I might do on the engineering side to create new things, it's undone by maybe some of the bad things I do as a lawyer. Um, and so it's, I'm kind of neutral. I'm right in the middle. I'm, I'm balanced in that way. Um, the engineering side requires a tremendous amount of problem solving and creativity, technically. The lawyer side of me uh, requires creativity um, and risk assessment. Um, and then trying to figure out how to navigate to get to yes. One of the challenges that we find with a lot of lawyers is they're very easy going when, when they can get to no. If you're, if you're going to grow in business, you got to figure out how to get to yes. And that's the challenge on the lawyer side is how do you get to yes? Find a way to get to yes. I love it. Okay, so we're coming up on Super Bowl weekend. Mm -hmm. So I, I have to ask, what's the obvious question is, Chiefs or Bucks? What's the Super Bowl? <laughs> um, I I would love to see Tom Brady win just because I think it's it's an amazing accomplishment what he's done in his career and I don't think anybody will surpass it except maybe Patrick Mahomes uh, just given what he's done in his young career um, and uh, uh, the Seahawks aren't in it so I don't really have a dog in the fight Okay, well, I'm with you. I, I am. I, I think I'm personally. I think I'm. I'm rooting for the Buccaneers just because I have the same feeling as I'd love to see Brady close out his career with that. Now that he's left the Patriots, I have a little more uh, sympathy yeah. for him. Yeah, he was it, was, it, was hard, it was a hard pill to swallow when he was still <laughs> at the Patriots. That's right. Um, okay, so what would you suggest as the perfect craft cocktail for this for this year's Super Bowl? For this year's Super Bowl, oh, I would uh, – an amazing Manhattan is always good. Uh, in our tasting rooms right now, we I use rye whiskey, and we are using these um, figs that are oh. soaked, um, almost like a, instead of a maraschino cherry. Uh, so it's a, we call it a fig Manhattan. Um, it's awesome. Well, I'm going to have to check that out for sure. Beautiful, beautiful color, too. It's got a little bit of orange to it. Mm. So, so, you know, you get that both from the chief side and the buccaneer side out of some of there their. There you go. There you go. Very nice. Okay. Last question for you. Yeah. Who's the one person um, that you've connected with let's on LinkedIn or podcast or follow? Somebody that you don't know personally that you would love to re meet in real life? Could be LinkedIn, podcast, TV show host. Who would you most like to meet? Do they have to be alive or? or can they be let's go with live live okay i was gonna say james madison but uh, well that's a good that's okay so that's the dead answer now let's go with the alive answer james madison because he's the author of the constitution and a genius and very detailed in study going back to his young childhood really I've amazing a few people give me that answer so that's yeah. interesting yeah he's, he's really the father of the u.s uh, when it comes to the structure so alive oh man um I think I'd like to spend some time with Elon Musk. Yeah, I, I think, I think you would get along famously. I think that'd be wild. Think that'd be that wild. would be great. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, are crazy? there any, any last uh, uh, closing thoughts, parting thoughts you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah. Uh, again, don't be constrained by the ideas of what you thought your business was before. Um, do right by others. They'll come around eventually and they'll do right by you. Respect the community, respect the consumer. And um, most importantly, with all this craziness going on around us, um, we got to just like set everything down and just figure out how to talk to each other. Just figure out how to talk to each other. That's it.
I appreciate that very much. Um, I really want to thank you for coming on. For anybody, if you're not connected with um, Justin, please connect with him here on LinkedIn. Um, follow Heritage Distilling Company. They're on all social media platforms. Um, if you follow them on Instagram, there's always great cocktail suggestions and recipes. So I encourage you to check out their products. Um, they're phenomenal, um, not only in their products, but also in the way that they conduct business. Um, they're just a fantastic company, as you can see, with great leadership. And I can tell you right down to the people that work in the tasting rooms, they all um, convey those same qualities and those um, uh, and, and just just a, a fantastic company. So again, thanks, Justin. Um, have a great day, everybody, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.